Well, I don't know about you, but when it comes to climbing up Mount Everest, what word pops to mind about the people who do this thing? Well, the word that comes to my mind is the word obsessed. I mean, why would anybody pay the price that you have to pay to do this thing? First of all, it begins with $65,000 per person just to go over there and try. Then the next cost is two to three months living in a tent up on a mountain in Nepal. And then that doesn't even count the incredible cost to, uh, to the body, just to our physical body that it takes to do this. I mean, friends, above 17 or 18,000 feet, the human body was simply not made to exist. It breaks apart. It deteriorates. Even with the help of supplemental oxygen, while attempting to climb Mount Everest, people break ribs from incessant coughing. They get embolisms. They get blood clots. They dehydrate. They lose their appetite. They vomit uncontrollably. In his book, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer said, described it like this, and I quote, he said, every minute you remain at this altitude, your minds and your bodies are deteriorating. Brain cells are dying. Our blood was growing dangerously thick and sludge-like, capillaries in our retinas were spontaneously hemorrhaging, and even at rest, our hearts were beating at a furious rate, end of quote. So I come back to what I said at the beginning. What in the world would cause anybody to keep going through conditions like this? Obsession. It's the only thing I can figure out. Now, the reason I bring it up is because today we're going to look at another man who was obsessed. A fellow named King David, except what David was obsessed about was not climbing Mount Everest. What David was obsessed about was building a glorious temple to God in the city of Jerusalem. And we want to use David's obsession as the backdrop to some wonderful lessons God wants to teach you and me as followers of Jesus in the 21st century today. So I want you to take a Bible and let's open it together. First Chronicles chapter 22, and if you didn't bring a Bible, how about borrowing our copy? You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 301, page 301 in our copy, First Chronicles 22 in your copy of the Bible. Can you guys hear me okay in the lobby? Raise your hands so I know you're all right. We love you guys. The fall, trust me, the fall. We're going to fix this. Okay, God bless you. Now, a little bit of background while you're turning. We are now arriving at the closing chapter of the life of the man of God, David. And David has taken Israel from being a tiny, divided country, and he has built Israel into the mightiest empire in the ancient Near East. God has blessed David's life beyond David's, David's wildest expectations. But friends, David had a dream. And David's dream that he's been waiting his entire life to fulfill is the dream of building a magnificent temple to God in the city of Jerusalem. And right now, as we pick up the story, he's at the end of his life and he's talking to his son Solomon, who's the one that's actually going to make this happen. So let's pick up verse 7, 1 Chronicles 22. Look with me, if you would, at verse 7. And David said to Solomon, my son... I had it in my heart to build a house for the Lord here in Jerusalem. But this word of the Lord came to me and said, You have shed much blood and you have fought many wars, David. You are not going to build my house because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. However, you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. He... 
uh, I'm sorry, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, what we're talking about here happened 30 years ago. When David first conquered Jerusalem, the, the, the number one thing he wanted to do was build a temple right away. And God said, David, I got some good news for you and I got some bad news for you. The bad news is you're not going to do it. But the good news is you're going to have a son and your son will actually build this thing. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I believe David was probably hugely disappointed to have God say that to him. And a lot of us at that point would have just thrown our hands up and given up and said, oh, well... But not David. Uh Uh-uh. I want you to look back at verse 5 and see what David did. David says, verse 5, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, David said, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations for the temple before his death. What David did is David said, okay, God, so you told me I couldn't build it, but you didn't tell me I couldn't do everything short of building it. And so I'm going to do everything but build it. I'm going to put I'm going to stockpile everything my son needs. And if you read in verse three and four of this chapter, you'll find that David stockpiled large amounts of iron and bronze and cedar wood and stone for the temple. If you read in verse 15 and 16 of this chapter, you'll find that David lined up all the subcontractors that were needed to work on this thing. If you read in verse 14 of this chapter, it tells about all the gold and the silver that David set aside for the project. And don't do it now, but if you turn to chapter 28 of First Chronicles, you will find that David handed his son Solomon a complete set of plans for the temple, plans that he had been working on for 30 years, that had every room outlined, how every courtyard was supposed to look, how every piece of furniture was supposed to be built. David gave it all to him. I love the fact David did everything up to where God said no. Now he did one more thing. And I want to show you this. It's in chapter 29. Turn to chapter 29 with me and let me show you the one last thing David did. Chapter 29, look at verse 1. It says, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task of building this temple is great because this palatial structure is not for man. This is for the Lord God. And so David says, verse 2, with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of God. I have got used all of my government funds, and here's what I've set aside. Gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and and all these other things, marble. And then David says this, verse 3. He says, and besides all of these other funds I've set aside, government funds, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver over and above everything I have provided out of government funds. You understand what David's doing here? He said, hey, government funds are wonderful, but now I'm going into my personal checkbook now and I'm going to make a contribution out of my personal funds. And how much was it that David contributed? Well, he goes on to say 7,000 talents of of silver and 3,000 talents of of gold. Now, how much was that? Well, at $5 an ounce for silver today, 7,000 talents of silver is $41.5 million worth of silver. 
And 3,000 talents of gold at $300 an ounce, today's prices, is $1.1 billion in gold, in modern money. David went into his own personal checking account and wrote a check for what amounted to $1.2 billion and made that contribution to the temple. Friends, I think it's fair to say that what we have here is a man who was obsessed about getting this job done. Do you think that's fair? Now, we want to stop there. That's as far as we want to go in the passage because we have an extremely important question we need to ask. And everybody knows what that question is. So take a deep breath. Here we go. Come on now. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Thank you. Wonderful. You say, Lon, so what? I think that's great. Admire the guy. Um, But you know what? That doesn't have diddly squat to do with what I'm dealing with in the 21st century as a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't don't assume that yet. There's a great lesson here I want to point out to you that has everything to do with our life today. Did you read several weeks ago about the lottery? The largest single lottery jackpot in history. And it was won by two people. There were two winning tickets. And each winning ticket was worth over $160 million. Now, friends, how would you feel if you won $160 million? You ever think about that? How would you feel? Would you feel happy? Would you feel uh, uh, powerful? Would you feel maybe a little more secure? Would you feel liberated? Could tell that boss which lake to go jump in. Would would you feel uh, maybe just a little arrogant with that kind of money? Well, what we've just seen in the Bible is that David's personal funds made $160 million look like petty cash. I mean, the guy gave away $1.2 billion and he didn't give away all of it. So my question is, how did David feel about having these incredible amount of resources. How did he feel? Well, uh, he tells us. Look right here in chapter 29, and he tells you how he feels. Verse 14, chapter 29, verse 14. Here's what he's praying to God. After he's made this incredible gift, he says, But Lord, who am I? Lord, who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give a gift like this as generously as this to you? Friends, how did David feel? Well, David tells us he didn't feel happy. He didn't feel powerful. He didn't feel secure. He didn't feel liberated. He didn't feel arrogant. But these kind of resources made David feel awestruck. He was overwhelmed when he looked at this and said, this is the undeserved goodness of God. This is the unmerited blessing of God. Who am I that God should have given all this to me? Now, folks, this is not the first time David has ever expressed this sentiment in response to God's blessing. I want you to turn back in 1 Chronicles to chapter 17. And remember now, in going back to chapter 17, you are going back 30 years in the life of David. So as you turn the pages, count them off. Five years, ten years, fifteen years for every page. You're going back thirty years in this man's life. Back to the time where he was a rookie king. Brand new. And right here, what we find is that God gives him the promises of the Davidic covenant. Now, we went over the Davidic covenant a few months ago when we talked about this. And I know every one of you here remembers all the promises God made. But just for the sake of those of you who may not, maybe we should review. 
All right. The Davidic covenant were three great promises that God made to David. First, he promised David that he was going to exalt David's kingdom. The second thing he promised David is that he was going to raise up a son to David who would build this wonderful temple. And the third thing that he promised David is that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus himself, would be a direct descendant come right out of the lineage of King David. These were the three promises. And in response to these awesome promises, look what David does. First Chronicles 17, verse 16. And King David went in and, and, and sat before the Lord, and here's what he said. Who am I, O Lord God? Does that sound familiar? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? You say, Lon, that sounds like the prayer, the other the prayer we just read about. Well, it is. It's almost word for word. Now, friends, here's what I want you to notice. It is one thing when you're a rookie king, when you haven't done diddly squat, when you haven't got diddly squat. It is one thing at that time when God blesses you some for you to respond to it with awe and being overwhelmed and to stand up and say, oh, God, who am I that you should do this to me? I mean, like Bob Dylan said, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. It's easy to be awestruck at somebody's goodness to you then. But hey, it's a whole different thing 30 years later to be the ruler of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. To, to, to be a, a figure bigger than life, to, to be a man that has a personal fortune that runs into billions and billions of dollars, it's another thing 30 years later, in light of all of that success, to still be able to stand up and say, Lord, who am I that you would have done this for me? But after all of his achievements, after all of his success, after all of his accomplishments, at the zenith of his power, David was still as overwhelmed and as awestruck and where God had taken him and what God had done for him as he was 30 years before when he was a rookie. Man, that impresses me. Because I'll tell you, I think that that's a big part of the reason why God blessed this man the way he did. With all of his mistakes. And friends, did David have some mistakes? Oh, yes. With all of his shortcomings, did David have some shortcomings? Oh, yes, he did. With all of his warts, did David have some warts? Yes, he did. But with all of his shortcomings and his warts and his failures, David never lost the awe. He never lost the awe of God's goodness to him. He never began to see God's blessings as entitlements or as something that was due him or as something he deserved from start to finish. David saw it all as the undeserved mercy of God. It overwhelmed him at every point when he thought about it. And I believe God loved this about David. I believe God loved this about this man. I believe this is what made God feel comfortable in showering the blessings he did on this man. And didn't Jesus himself give us this very same equation? Didn't Jesus say, he who exalts himself shall be what? humble. He who humbles himself like David. He who responds to everything I give him by just saying, Lord, who am I that you should do this for me? What will happen to that person, Jesus said? Well, they'll be exalted. Now, what this means for us as followers of Jesus Christ here in the 21st century is that if we want to see God flood our lives with his richest blessing like he did for David, I believe we need to be people 
who have the very same attitude that David had. We need to be people who never lose the awe. We need to be people who never take God's blessings for granted, who never begin to see them as entitlements that we're due, who never begin to believe that we're worthy or deserving of these things, but who constantly stand around and look at what God's given us and say to God, God, who am I? And who is my family that you should have done this for me? Who am I? Now, let me tell you what I've learned. I've learned that the more God blesses you, and the higher God takes you, and the greater God lifts you up, the harder it is to keep this attitude. The harder it is not to lose the awe. Because, friends, it's the way we're wired. We're wired as, soon as, as human beings for, for success to go to our head. We're wired to begin believing our own PR. We're wired, Romans 12, 3, to begin thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And then we end up as a result of that on the wrong side of Jesus' equation. And then the spigot of God's blessing starts to get turned down. We, if we want to keep the spigot wide open, we've got to be people who, whether we're rookies, or whether we're 30 years later, our attitude never changes. God, I stand in awe of what you've done for me. Who am I? Now you say, well, Lon, I understand what you're saying. But you, you yourself just said, the more God blesses us, the highest God, higher God takes us, the harder it is to stay there. You know, do you have any practical suggestions at all about how we can keep, keep the awe, keep ourselves where we need to be as God blesses our lives? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I do, I do, I do. In fact, I've got three suggestions to give you, and they all grow out of things that I use in my life to help this. And I hope you don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But, you know, I have people all the time who ask me, Lon, on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night or a Sunday night, when you look around and you see what God is doing at McLean Bible Church, what do you feel? What do you think? And I've got to tell you, friends, I have worked really hard to say what I feel authentically is, Lord, who am I? How did I get here? How did I become a part of this? How did this happen? And let me tell you three things I use that help keep my feet on the ground. And they work for me. I hope they'll work for you. No matter where God has put you, I hope they'll work. They will. Number one. Number one, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. Remember where God found you. Look right here in chapter 17. Look at verse 7. God speaking to David. He says, now then, go tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. I took you, David, from the pasture, from following a bunch of sheep to be the ruler over my people Israel. God says, hey, David, look, man, I want to tell you when I found you, don't, don't forget where you were. Hey, when I found you, the most intelligent thing that anybody ever said to you all day long was, that was it. Hey, you were a runt. You were a nothing. You weren't a big shot. You were a little ruddy-faced guy. And when I sent the prophet Samuel to come and anoint one of Jesse's sons, one of your dad's sons, to be the king, do you remember what happened? Your dad and your brothers, they didn't even invite you in from the field. They didn't even think you were a candidate. They left you out there with the sheep. Hey, son, don't you forget where I found you. You were nothing when I found you. You just walking around with a bunch of sheep when I found you. I've made you king over the mightiest nation on the face of the earth. But don't forget where you came from, son. Friends, got to tell you something. This is healthy to remember where we came from, where God found us. That brings us back to reality. 
Because God found most of us right where he found David. We weren't big shots. We weren't doing much of anything. A lot of people didn't believe in us. And God took us to where we are. Remember where God found you. Hey, when I was in high school, I had a miserable four years. I got to tell you, most of it I brought on myself. I came from a dysfunctional family. I was a psychological wreck, a disaster zone. And I was picked on mercilessly, abused. In my high school, you know, you had senior superlatives, best dressed, friendliest, most likely to succeed. Well, Woodrow Wilson High School, Portsmouth, Virginia, 1966, when I graduated, if there had been a senior superlative for least likely to succeed, I would have won by acclamation. I wouldn't have even had anybody running against me. I'd have been elected unanimously to that senior superlative. And I'm not kidding you. Ask anybody who knew me. Then I went off to college. And by the time I was 21 years old, I had hair out to my shoulder, love beads, bell bottoms, motorcycle boots, a tank top, and was on dope so bad I never even could get up and go to class in the morning. And that's where I was when Jesus found me. I tell you, I wasn't much of a deal for anybody except a dog catcher. That was about it. And, and I'll tell you, it really helps me to go back and say, Lon, just remember where Jesus found you. Remember where you were when he picked up and took over. Friend, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way as your Savior, let me tell you something. Inside of you, there's capacity. Inside of you, there is skill. Inside of you, there's potential. Inside of you, there's destiny that God has built into you, but you'll never get there. You'll never get there on your own. Because the passions that also live in your life are too strong for you to overcome them yourself to a sufficient degree that you ever will be able to maximize what God has put inside of you. Hey, I'll tell you where I got myself. I got myself to hair out to my shoulders, love beads, bell bottoms, and on dope. That's as far as I knew how to get by myself. But it's when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and he went into the cockpit and said, okay, I got the stick now, man. Get out of the cockpit. Go, you just go ride. I'll take it from here. That's when my life changed and I began to be able to begin reaching the potential that God built into me. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, if you'll get out of the cockpit, if you'll just let Jesus come in and take over the stick, he'll take you to places you wouldn't even imagine you could ever get to. But you'll never get there by yourself. He's got to get you there. And then when you get there, don't forget where he found you. Don't forget where you came from. Number two, principle number two, is remember not only where you came from, but remember where your success emanates from. Look at verse 8 here. God speaking still in First Chronicles 17. He says, David, I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. Would you notice, please, that the subject of none of those three sentences was David? Would you notice it's I've done this for you and I've done that for you and now this is what I'm going to do for you. This is not about David. David didn't get to where David was because of David. This is a God thing that was happening here. God said, I'm the one who've done, who's done this, David. And, and you know, folks, I love Psalm 75, verse 6. Not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south comes exaltation. God is the one who lifts some people up and who decides to bring other people down. Whatever success you enjoy today, whatever notoriety you enjoy today, whatever position you enjoy today, friends, you are not the subject of the sentence that got yourself there. God is. 
You say, but Lord, wait a minute. I have a real problem with this. You know, I've worked hard. I've dedicated myself. I went to school. I maximized my talents. I really, I really dug in deep. I paid the price to get where I am. You did. And that's wonderful. But friends, who gave you the talents that you maximized? Who opened the opportunities for you to go and do what you've done with them? And oh, by the way, who kept your heart beating during all that time so you could maximize your talents? Hey, Paul said it. What do you have, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, that you did not receive? Well, nothing. Then if you just, if you received it, Paul said, why do you walk around boasting and bragging as though you didn't receive it? Friends, wherever you are today, you're there because of God. And when we remember that, that this is all about God's undeserved goodness to us, it helps us stand in awe and be able to say, Lord, who am I? Remember where you came from. Remember where your success emanates from. Third and final principle, remember where we're going. Remember where we're going. Turn back to chapter 29, if you would, real quick, to David's prayer. And if you remember here, David says, verse 14, chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles, Lord, who am I? And who is my people that you would have done this for me? And I want you to see what he says in the very next breath. Verse 15, chapter 29, he says, We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all of our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow. Our days on earth are like a shadow. James said the same thing in his letter, James chapter 4. He says, What is your life? It is like a mist, a vapor, you and I are, that appears for a minute and then we're gone. We're out of here. And and, and friends, it's when we remember how transitory we are, when we remember how impermanent we are, when we remember how fleeting and passing we are, and we realize in light of the whole universe how insignificant you and I really are, it makes the goodness of God stand out to us as even more awesome. You've been keeping up with the Senate race in New York, huh? Mayor Rudolph Giuliani up there. Hey, this guy was a tough guy. Mayor of New York City, brash, hard-nosed, whipped that city into shape, tough politician. Then he gets cancer. And he drops out the race a week or so ago. And you know, I want you to see the change in this man's attitude that cancer brought. Quoting now from the Washington Post, here's what he said when he announced he was dropping out, and I quote. He said, cancer, when you have cancer, it forces you to confront your limits. It forces you to confront your mortality. You begin to realize that you're not a superman. You're just a human being. End of quote. You see, a brush with mortality. Man, look what it did in this brash politician. Man, did it humble him quick or what? And you see, brushing with mortality has a way of doing that, friends. Brushing with where we're really headed has a way of bringing us right back down to earth. I love what God said to Adam. Adam, he said, from dust you were taken, and to dust is where you're going. Now, friends, it's pretty hard to be arrogant when you just dust. You understand what I'm saying? Dust. How can dust be arrogant? Now, does this mean God wants us to to, to demean ourselves? God wants us to cheapen ourselves? God wants us to devalue ourselves, to walk around with worm theology? Oh, me, I'm just a worm. Step on me. No. No, that's not humility. That's mental illness, as we like to say. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about here. 
God values you so much, He sent His very own Son to die on the cross for you. This is not about devaluing ourselves. This is about having a clear understanding of where we're going, how impermanent we are. And as Psalm 8 says, what is man that you would even take thought of him in the whole scheme of the universe? When we can see ourselves like that, it makes God's goodness to us stand out and shine as even more awesome. Remember where you're going. How do we keep from losing the awe? How do we get to the place that whether it's at the beginning of our career when we got nothing or at the end when God has exalted us beyond our wildest dreams, how do we how do we achieve the ability at every point to authentically say, Lord, who am I? Who am I (laughs) that you would do this for me, Lord? I'm awestruck. Well, number one, remember where you came from. Remember where God found you. Number two, remember where your success emanated from. Didn't come from you, friends. It's all about God. And number three, remember where you're going. We're going back to dust. And it's hard for dust to be arrogant. Let's remember that. And it works. Works for me. I believe it'll work for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks today for talking to us about stuff that's right down everyday 21st century practical, right where we live. Because we live in a world system that says, exalt yourself, assert yourself, promote yourself, lift yourself up, advance yourself, publicize yourself. And you say, humble yourself. Don't lose the awe. Of what I've done for you. Lord, if we're be able to really maintain that mentality, that sentiment. We create a situation where you can leave the spigot wide open on the blessing of God on our lives. And so, Lord, help us to be able, no matter where we are in our life and in our career sitting here today. Help us to make it our aim. That our response to everything that we have and everything we ever will have will be a simple, Lord, who am I that you should do this for me? Change our lives, change our attitudes, because we were here today and we learned from you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.